years old. After all, they say, doesn't science prove that the Earth is extremely old? And others might say, well, why is the age of the Earth important? It's not like it's part of the gospel. Why argue about a young Earth versus an old Earth? Let me first address this latter question by way of parallel. The Bible is inerrant. It's true in all its claims, including in the miraculous. For instance, the Bible claims that a series of miraculous and deadly plagues fell upon the kingdom of Egypt before the Israelites were released from captivity there. The Bible also claims that the sun and moon lingered in their positions an entire day while the Israelites slew their enemies. The Bible even claims that a great Babylonian king by name of Nebuchadnezzar was made to live like a beast. He was insane for seven periods of time when he boasted in his own greatness. Now, you know the Bible makes many claims besides these. But suppose someone comes along and questions these specific claims, saying, there's no mention of the plagues in the histories or the archaeology of Egypt. It must be a myth. Or it's scientifically impossible for the sun to remain in the sky without the world falling apart. I mean, if the earth stopped rotating or if the sun stopped its movement, surely that would have broken the universe. And there's no record outside the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. It must have been a myth, or it must have been applied to someone else and erroneously attributed to Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. Here's the question I would want you to think about in light of all that. Would it be important for Christians to stand up for those claims against such objections? I would say yes, but why? Is it because these directly have to do with the gospel? Do we really need to affirm that the sun did indeed stay in the sky and Nebuchadnezzar did indeed live for seven years like a beast? Why stand for those details? It's because it's about authority. Can we believe what the Bible says or not? Does the Bible have to agree with another authority before we can believe the Bible? The Bible says it. It's a clear claim. I'm going to affirm it. Maybe it's not the first thing I talk about, but if somebody challenges it, I'm not going to back down. I'm going to say, well, yeah, that's true, because it's in the Bible. So it is with the age of the earth. The Bible makes very clear and specific claims about the age of the earth. Therefore, oh, and these claims are, I'm not hidden in some obscure passage. You don't need a code book or a PhD to understand these claims. They're plain. Therefore, to deny, to explain away, to reinterpret the Bible's claims about the age of the earth, I believe, is to undermine and even reject the authority of the Bible. And if we reject part of the Bible for the sake of some other authority, then we are in danger of rejecting another part of the Bible for the sake of the same authority. I mean, Christians, we're humans, we can definitely be inconsistent, but if we are being consistent, then we will begin to reinterpret the entire Bible and even perhaps compromise the gospel. So I don't want us to be deceived about this. The age of the earth is an important issue for Christians today, not because it's salvific. It's not even necessarily the most important issue, but it is important because it's about the authority of the Bible. Is the Bible our authority for truth or not? But perhaps you're asking, does the Bible really tell us about the age of the earth? Well, it does. And that's what I want to show you in this class today. Here's what we're looking at. Here's our agenda. We're first going to start by watching a video that overviews seven to eight reasons based on the scripture as ultimate authority 
that should cause us to reject the idea of an old earth. We'll then investigate two very fascinating genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 and compare them to the genealogies found elsewhere in the Bible and see what these genealogies have to tell us about the age of the earth. And finally, we'll take a closer look at one of the main proofs asserted by secular scientists today, that is radioisotope dating, and see whether it is trustworthy and reliable for determining the age of the earth. Now let's pray before we go forward. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you are Lord of the universe and you are creator, and we love to see your handiwork. It testifies of you, God, and it gives us reason to praise you. But certainly, we, Lord, we have a lot of questions about what we see in the ground and around the world. And there are a lot of different claims about the age of the earth based on that. We want to be able to think through this issue rightly. Please help me to be able to explain this issue well from your word. Help the people who are listening to be able to understand. And God, I pray that we would be edified and equipped with answers to those who make challenges in this area. I pray that you bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with a video. Why shouldn't Christians accept millions of years? It's a short video. It's about four minutes. But listen, and we're going to, and as you listen, note the different reasons. They come kind of quickly. The different reasons presented for why Christians shouldn't accept the millions of years view. All right, let's see if we can get that video now. Why shouldn't Christians accept millions of years? Why shouldn't Christians accept millions of years? Today, most Christians seem to accept that idea, and they have for the last 200 years. But there are a number of reasons why we shouldn't. First of all, the evidence in Genesis 1 is that the days of creation were literal. God defined a day uh, in verse 5. He used uh, numbers, first day, second day, third day. We also get an idea of how long ago these days were in Genesis 5 and 11, where we have the genealogies from Adam to Noah and Noah to Abraham. And so those tell us how long ago the creation was. A second reason is Exodus 20, verse 11. God gives the commandment to the Israelites to work six days and rest on the seventh because he created in six days the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. We can't have any creation before the six days, and God uses the same word for days in both parts of the commandment, showing that God created in six literal days. The third reason we should ex reject the millions of years is because of Noah's flood. Noah's flood literally washes away those millions of years because that millions of years idea came from supposedly the geological record. But it came as a result of, of geologists in the early 19th century rejecting the biblical account of the flood and then using anti-biblical assumptions to interpret the rocks and the fossils. But Noah's flood is described in Genesis as a global catastrophe. So it would have produced exactly the kind of geological record we see today of, of thousands of feet of sedimentary rocks and fossils buried in them. A fourth reason is Jesus' view. Jesus always took the Old Testament uh, accounts in Genesis as literal history. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus is responding to a question by the Pharisees about divorce. And he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He then quotes from Genesis 1 and 2. 
So Jesus is saying that Adam and Eve were right back there at the beginning of creation, not billions of years after the beginning, as the evolutionists would want us to believe. A fifth reason we should reject the millions of years idea is because of the Bible's teaching about death. The Bible says in Genesis 1 that God created a perfect creation. It was very good. People and animals ate plants. They didn't eat animals. And then God cursed the creation, bringing death into the creation. And so Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation is now in bondage to corruption. A sixth reason is because science has not proven millions of years. See, the millions of years doesn't come from the rocks and the fossils. It comes from the interpretation of those things. And those interpretations are based on anti-biblical assumptions that dominate the scientific community today. So the rocks don't say millions of years. It is the interpretation. And finally, uh, we should reject this because the radiometric dating methods are not foolproof methods for giving us the age of rocks. Those methods are based on anti-biblical assumptions, again, and there's good reason uh, to believe scientifically that those assumptions are false. So ultimately, the real battle here is not between science and religion. It's a battle over authority. Will we believe the Word of God, who was there at the beginning, who knows everything, who always tells the truth, who never lies, and who gave us an inspired account so that we would have the truth about where this world came from, why it is the way it is, and where it's going? Or will we believe the fallible opinions of sinful men called scientists who don't know everything, who make mistakes, and who are trying to explain the world without God so they do not have to be morally accountable to Him? It's an issue of authority, and we need to believe God's Word. All right, very good. Told you it's a little quick, and there are a lot of reasons mentioned there, and we will briefly recount those arguments presented by the speaker. The speaker is actually Dr. Terry Mortensen. He's contributed a number of wonderful books and articles on the subject of the age of the earth. He's actually one of the contributors to the book I mentioned in previous Sunday School, Coming to Grips with Genesis. That is an excellent resource I would I would recommend to you about creation and about many of the issues associated with it. But he's written a number of other things too. Now in this brief video segment, he mentions seven or eight arguments as to why we should not accept an old earth view, but instead embrace the young earth view that's established in the Bible. I should define those terms for you. When we talk about young earth versus old earth, I mean, earth is old no matter which view you have, but relatively, a young earth is much, much younger than the old earth view. Old earth, we're talking about the scientific consensus today, which would be that the earth is four and a half billion years old and the universe is uh, much, much older than that. I actually forget the number right now. I think it's 13 billion, but billions of years old, where the young earth view is usually defined as between 6,000 years and 20,000 years old. Now, why is there that range? We'll talk about that more a little bit later. It has something to do with the Genesis genealogies, but young Earth, 6,000, 20,000 years, and an old Earth, billions of years. Now, what are the reasons that Dr. Mortensen mentioned in the video for why we shouldn't accept this old Earth, millions or billions of years view? A number of these reasons we've looked at already in our Sunday School lessons, and some of them we'll look at further today, but they're listed for you on the screen again. Genesis 1 leads us to believe that these are 
solar days described as the days of creation, 24 hours. And that comes from the literary and the grammatical cues. There's the genealogies that we'll discuss, Genesis 5 and 11. They have something to do with establishing a young earth. There's Exodus 20:11, which confirms six literal days as the way we would understand the days of creation. There's Noah's flood and how it affects the fossil record. There's Jesus's view, his reference to the beginning of creation when talking about male and female in Mark 10, 6. There's the idea of how death before the fall doesn't make sense with what the rest of the scripture describes, and it compromises what would be otherwise a very good creation. There's the fact that Dr. Mortensen brings up that science has not proven an old earth, but has interpreted the data in a way that affirms an old earth. These are just interpretations and opinions. And finally, the dating methods that make up a bulk of the scientific support for an old earth have certain assumptions associated with them, which ultimately are unjustified making the dating methods not totally reliable, especially when it comes to establishing the age of the earth. Now that's something we'll talk about more a little bit later in today's class. But let's turn to the subject of the genealogies. We wanna consider what is this line of reasoning and whether it's valid. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter five. We're gonna take a look at these two genealogies, Genesis five, and eventually we'll get to Genesis 11. We're just going to get a flavor of these genealogies. We'll just start with verses 1 to 11 in Genesis chapter 5. We'll read it, observe, make some observations, do the same for the other genealogy, and then consider what it has to say about the age of the earth. So Genesis 5, 1, follow along with me as I read down to verse 11. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years, and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Now, we're going to not read through the rest, but if you just glance at the rest of the passage, you'll see that it continues to talk the same way about Kenan, and then Mahalalel, and Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. Well, let's just briefly make some observations on this passage. Like in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, Genesis 5, 1 has a statement that functions like a heading in this passage. It says, these are the generations. This is telling us what this passage will be about. This is a factual record of Adam's generations or descendants. And notice the information from Genesis 1 to 2 that is reconfirmed at the beginning of this passage. God created man in his image and made them male and female when he created them. Notice that there's a lot of repetition in this passage. We have so-and-so lived 
certain number of years and became the father of so-and-so. Then he lived a certain number of years and became the father of, all right, yeah, he became a father, lived a certain, other, a certain number of other years and had other sons and daughters. So these words keep on getting repeated. And so all the days were such and such, and then he died. It's like a little formula that, that the passage keeps on repeating. There's also the repetition of the term likeness. God made man in his own likeness, and then Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. The implication being that so did the rest of these descendants. They were continuing to reproduce descendants in their own likeness. Now, which descendant of Adam is part of this list? It's not Cain, it's not Abel, but it's Seth. Seth is not the first child of Adam. Is Seth the third child? We don't know. It could be, it would make sense, but it doesn't say specifically. In fact, when each of these descendants is, is listed here, not necessarily the first child. It could be, we don't know the number, but this list is concerned with specific descendants from each father. It's highlighting them for us and showing how they are connected. Do note that the text emphasizes that each parent had other sons and daughters. So we don't know the order of the one that's being highlighted in the text. Note, how old was Adam when Seth was born? It's 130 years old. That's, that's kind of interesting. How old was Adam when Adam died? 930 years. Okay, that's a little different than it is today, right? That's a long lifespan. Notice who the last people are listed in our genealogy. Just glance down at the bottom of the passage. We have Noah, and then it says, and then Noah had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this actually breaks the formula a little bit. Rather than, than repeating all the different language that's used throughout the passage, it says Noah had these three sons. Not one specific descendant, but three. Notice it says, how old was Noah when he had them? It says that he was 500. Now that itself is interesting, especially because it's way, way longer wait than the others in this passage. But do note that there are some differences with this section of the passage compared to the rest. This detail about Noah being 500 does not necessarily mean that all the children were born in his 500th year. They're not necessarily triplets. This number may be referring to when Noah began to have children, and one of these sons was born. We're going to see the same kind of thing at the end of the next genealogy in Genesis 11, and we'll talk about how to interpret the number given there, just as we do here. But one of the sons, surely, was born in the year 500. Now, according to Genesis 7-7, we want to note this also, so will play a role in Genesis 11 in connecting these two genealogies. Noah was 600 when the flood came upon the earth. So he has his first son, 500, but he's 600 when the flood comes upon the earth. Now, Let's jump over to the Genesis 11 genealogy now and compare it to this one that we've observed in Genesis 5. Let's just turn in your Bibles a little bit over to Genesis 11. Genealogy does not begin this passage. It actually begins with the account of the rebellion at Babel. But look down to verse 10. The genealogy stretches from verse 10 to verse 26. And then there's some extra information after that. Notice how, just glancing at it, we're not going to read it, notice how this passage is similar to the one in Genesis 5. Pretty much starts the same way, where we had, these are the records of the generations of 
Adam in Genesis 5, in Genesis 11, it says these are the records of the generations of Shem. So this genealogy starts with Shem. And notice we also have the same structural formula that was used in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, though with a slight difference. We have so-and-so lived this many years until he fathered this descendant. But we don't have a tally, a total tally, like we did in Genesis 5. It doesn't say, and the total number of years was so-and-so, and he died. It just says he lived this many other years, and he had other sons and daughters. We can still figure out the total age of each person just by adding the years before he had a certain descendant and the years after he had a certain descendant. So essentially, it's the same information recorded slightly differently. More importantly, we can still get key piece of information, how old each person was listed in this genealogy when he fathered a specific son. Now note who starts this genealogy again. We have Shem. And how old was Shem when he had his son, Arpachshad? Text might be a little bit confusing when we first read it. It says, Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Hmm. Does this mean that Shem was 100 when he had Arpachshad and it just happened to be two years after the flood? Or he was 100 and then two years went by and he had a son? Was he 100 or was he 102? Yeah, I could see it going either way. I'm going to use the interpretation that Shem was 102 when Arpachshad was born rather than 100. It actually won't make that much of a difference when we, when we do our entire calculation. You're going to have to put these two years with either Noah or with Shem, but the two years won't be lost either way. This detail about two years after the flood is important, though, because it does allow us to connect the Genesis 11 genealogy with the Genesis 5 genealogy. How is that? Well, let me show you. The flood, as I mentioned, took place in Noah's 600th year. And the text says, according to my interpretation, that Shem was 102 when he fathered a son, and that was two years after the flood. So we can calculate when Noah begat Shem. Shem. If Shem was 102, two years after the flood, then that means 102 years earlier was when Shem was born. So that would be when Noah was 500, because the flood begins when Noah is 600. Two years after that would be when Shem fathered his descendants. So if he's 102 at that time, and he was born 102 years earlier. So we could say, Shem was born when Noah was 500. Now notice how old Shem is when he dies. He's 602. It says he lived 500 more years after Arpachshad's birth. Now, as you skim through the rest of the names and numbers of this list, you might notice certain things in Genesis 11. Notice something happening about the ages, both of when children are being begotten, and when the fathers are dying. What do you notice? I think I heard some quiet answers. Things are getting shorter. The lifespans are getting shorter, and people are having the specific descendants, the specific descendants mentioned earlier. Many in the Genesis 5 list, for instance, didn't give birth to the specific descendant listed until age 70 or even age 100. But most of the fathers here in Genesis 11 are giving birth to their descendant around age 30 to 35. 
Also, the lifespans are rapidly decreasing. We have Shem living up to 605, but towards the end of the list, notice Nahor. Nahor in verse 24, how long does he live? Only 148 years. So there's 29 years when he begets his descendant, and then he lived 119 years after that. And we, we continue to see this downward progression in ages. Why is this? And this is very different from the, the Genesis 5 list. There's some variation between the ages and the Genesis 5 list, but they're all pretty long. But here in Genesis 11, they just rapidly decrease. Why is that? The Bible doesn't say. Though this is after the flood. So whatever the reason is, it has to do with this rapidly decreasing lifespan. It appears to have something to do with how the earth changed after the flood, a different environment on the earth. Though it may also have something to do with, with something that is called the genetic load. And that is, over time, since the fall, when human DNA gets copied, it gets copied with errors. And those errors accumulate over time. First couple generations maybe doesn't make that much of a difference. But as the generations progress, as more and more DNA is being replicated and, and people are begetting different descendants, those errors begin to pile up and they begin to result in diseases and other problems for people that they can't get past and they die. It may have something to do with both of those things, one or both. But certainly we're noticing there's this decrease. And notice an important person who appears at the very end of this list in Genesis 11, and that is Abram. We have uh, Nahor, Terah, and then Abram. Now note that just like in Genesis 5, the list here in Genesis 11 ends with one descendant having three listed sons. Genesis 5, it was Noah having Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 11, it's Terah having Aham, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now this is important because this breaks the pattern of the list and the number reported with this verse needs a little bit of extra care. It says here that Terah was 70 years old when he had these sons. But again, remember, this does not necessarily mean that he had each of these sons at 70. It just means he had one of these sons. This would be when he uh, started fathering sons or when he fathered one of these sons. Why is that important? Because otherwise we might misinterpret this number. When we read Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, or if we read on in Genesis 11, I should say, <clears throat> we'll see that Abram was not actually born until later because Terah, we're told, dies at age uh, 205. And only then does Abram set out from the city of Haran to come to Canaan. But how old is Abram when he does that after his father dies at 205? Genesis 12.4 says that Abram was 75. So if Abram is 75, right after his father Terah dies, that means that he must have been born when Terah was 130. Thus, age 70, as it appears here in our Genesis 11 list, does not seem to apply to when Terah fathered Abram, but rather one of the other sons, either Nahor or Haran. So there's just that little detail to recognize. As I mentioned, if we continue on after verse 26 in the text, we see more about Abram and his immediate relatives. And Genesis 12 is going to pick up with the account of Abram. So I don't know if you followed all of that, but hopefully you did. There's some fascinating information in these genealogies. Let me sum up. 
we're not only given a list of descendants in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, but we're also told the lifespan of each father and the age of when they fathered the next specific descendant in the lineage. And these lists of descendants are not arbitrarily chosen. They ultimately link three very important people who are discussed more at length in Moses' Torah. And which three people are they? Adam, Noah, and Abram, or Abraham. Each one of these is highlighted more at length in the accounts of Genesis. Now we're told the line of descent and even the number of years between these various people in the list. Before we try and build something on this regarding the age of the earth, we should ask this question. Are all the genealogies in the Bible like these two genealogies? Well, the answer is no. No, these are actually very unique. And let me show you this. Just turn back over to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10 features another genealogy. We won't read it, but if you just glance at it, you'll notice how it's different. Genesis 10, we're given the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but there are three striking differences between this genealogy and the two we just looked at. First of all, there's no record of years. There's no mention about how much time went by. There's multiple descendants of each father being mentioned, and we're even told where some of the descendants went, where they settled. This is very different from what we just read in Genesis 5 and 11. But let's look at another one. Turn over to the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 1. So near the middle of your Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 1. The book of Chronicles begins with a genealogy. But again, notice how it's different from Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. We do have a number of names. We have a list of descent, but again, no record of years. Again, we also have, for some people, multiple descendants mentioned. And also, if you just look at how this genealogy stretches across the pages of your Bible, it's longer than the ones we've looked at in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Hmm. Okay, so there are differences between uh, the Genesis genealogies and this one as well. Let's look at one more. Go to the New Testament. Turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3. This is where Luke pauses his account of the life and ministry of Jesus to give a genealogy. Look more closely down at the genealogy, starting in verse 23. Pay special attention to what appears in verses 34 to 38. Verses 34 to 38, we see a number of names that actually are also represented on the Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 genealogies. But again, notice how this genealogy is different from the ones we looked at in Genesis. First of all, this genealogy works backwards. We're actually starting at the end of the genealogy and working our way back to Adam, who was created and is called the Son of God. Also, in this list, we have only one descendant of each person mentioned. But again, there's no time information, no year information. In fact, if we were to look at all the genealogies of the Bible and compare them to Genesis 5 and 11, there's no other genealogy besides those two that records the specific year information that Genesis 5 and 11 do about how old the father was when he begat a descendant and how old he lived afterwards. The most similar listing to the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, because of this time aspect, 
would actually be the records of the kings in Kings and Chronicles, when it says he reigned this many years, and then he died, and this guy reigned after him. That would probably be the closest parallel. The other genealogies, they work a little differently. Now that's important. That's a, a very important aspect to remember about these Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. And we'll say more about why in just a moment. But hopefully you're seeing just from the sampling that there are different ways that authors can use genealogies. They're going to have different purposes in writing them and even in constructing them. Genesis 5 and 11, however, appear to be the, a unique genre of genealogy. They are the, the only what's sometimes called chronogenealogies in the Bible. They're the only ones that tell us how old each father lived how old each father lived to be and how old they were when they had a specific child. In fact, Moses is interesting. He's a very, he's a writer who's very conscious about time and very meticulous about reporting time in his book, the Torah. If you keep going on in the Torah, the Pentateuch, you find that Moses, for instance, records exactly how many years each of the patriarchs lived. And he also records when they gave birth to their children just like in Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. Moses also tells the people of Israel in his writings how long they were in Egypt and how long they spent in each place once they came out of Egypt. Moses is very meticulous about time. He's very conscious. He wants to make sure the people know about time. That's very helpful because that means his original audience would have had a very good sense of the Earth's timeline and where they fit into it. And if that's true for the original audience, then it's also true for us. We should be able, based on how Moses wrote the Torah, we should be able to use the time details in the Bible, including those given in the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, to discover just how old the earth actually is. So this is how we're going to, based on the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies and other things, answer the question of how old is the earth? Here's where we need to deal with an objection, because someone will say, wait, 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 hold everything. You can't use these genealogies to calculate the age of the earth, because surely there are gaps in these Genesis genealogies. There are gaps. There's time missing. So these can't tell you how old the earth actually is. Is this a fair objection? And where does it come from? Well, the objection is partly based on modern scientific and archaeological consensus that asserts we cannot fit the necessary events of the ancient world, fossil record, etc., in the timeline established by these two genealogies. Surely this is too short. We have a whole bunch of events that we know happened at specific times, and they can't fit in these genealogies, so there must be gaps. Objection is also partly based on the fact that, yes, other genealogies in the Bible, some of the other genealogies in the Bible, do have gaps. They omit names that appear on parallel genealogies. Now, why would that be? Isn't that, isn't that a problem? Does that have something to do with error in the Bible? Well, no. There are reasons that genealogies could do that, if they are worded in a particular way. We'll say more about that in just a second, but let me give you... Let's see, did I put it... I think I put it on a... Let me skip through these. There we go. Let me give you four reasons why we should not listen to the objection that there are gaps in the genealogies and we can't use them in understanding the age of the earth. Here are the four reasons. First, as you've hopefully seen from 
my discussion, Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies are unique. They're different than other genealogies in the Bible. So whatever might cause a biblical writer to omit unimportant names in one genealogy in the Bible does not apply to these two unique genealogies in Genesis. They're a whole different genre of genealogy, and the author is looking to accomplish something different. Secondly, part of the reason that gaps do and can appear in other parts of the Bible has to do with the terminology being used in those genealogies. If a genealogy uses the phrase blank, son of blank, son of blank, and keeps on going on, well, there can be gaps because the word son, it could mean someone else besides an immediate descendant. It's a relative of some kind, not necessarily father and son. It could refer to one's grandson, for instance. You can still use the word son. I mean, think about it. What's one of the titles of Jesus? He's the son of David. What? David is not Jesus's literal father. How could he be the son of David? Well, that's okay. The term son, as understood in Hebrew and coming into the Greek, <clears throat> it has that flexibility. It can report a link of descent that is longer than a, a father to the son. So these other genealogies in the Bible that use the word son to report the relationship, they can have gaps. That's okay. They're not making any errors. The, the writers are choosing just to highlight certain people. That's fine. This, uh, this allowed the genealogies to be more concise, to uh, have certain symmetry, to allow for easier memorization, still not be inaccurate. But that's different than what we see in Genesis 5 and 11. If you noticed, what was the word that we kept seeing in our text? Fathered, or begat, or became the father of, depending on your translation. That's because we're using a whole different word in the Hebrew. Not son, but fathered. The Hebrew word yalad, it's a verb. Now yalad is only used to describe direct descent in the Bible. Father, son, mother, daughter. And the word does mean fathered, begat, or gave birth to. It doesn't have the same flexibility as the word son does. And really, it doesn't allow for gaps. So this is another reason we shouldn't assume or assert that there are gaps in Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. Now third, as we noted, it's Another reason we shouldn't accept gaps is that it would be inconsistent with Moses's pattern and purpose. Given his meticulous care regarding time throughout his books and making sure that the Israelites know exactly how much time went by, where they are in the timeline, it wouldn't make sense for him to break that pattern and omit large swaths of time in his genealogies. And then fourth and finally, even if someone does read gaps into the genealogies and actually accomplishes nothing in terms of supporting an old earth view and establishing millions of years because you can't infer that many gaps and, and reach millions of years. As we'll see in a moment, these two genealogies actually don't account for that much time, relatively speaking. You might, if you infer gaps, stretch the genealogies to include maybe double or triple the amount of people that are reported into the text. But if you do, you still only get at a max 20,000 years. This is why we say a young earth view stretches from 6,000 to 20,000 years. That's because those who take a young earth view, some of them do infer gaps in the, these Genesis genealogies. But even if you infer the gaps, you can't reach an old earth view. You can't reach millions of years. You can't stretch it more than double or triple the people because then you have a genealogy that is a omitting 
way more people than it includes. And what's the use of that kind of genealogy? That doesn't even make any sense. So saying that there are gaps in the Genesis 5.11 genealogy still leaves one with a gross inconsistency when it comes to the biblical timeline of the earth and the modern popularly asserted evolutionary timeline of the earth. Now, there are other issues related to the, the Genesis genealogies, which I'm not going to cover right now, other objections and answers to those objections. But if you're interested in those things or you have questions, maybe we'll have time at the end to talk about it or you can email me. But from what we are able to discuss, we can confidently assert that there are no gaps in the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. This means that we, like the ancient Hebrews, can actually use the time information reported in these genealogies to determine the age of the earth. We can see how much time went by between Adam and the beginning of creation and the time of the patriarchs. And if we can do that, well, let's do that. That's what we're going to do right now. Let's use the Bible to determine the age of the earth. And we'll do it in stages. Let me go back a couple slides. Da, 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 da. Don't look at the answers. Okay. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 5. And we'll see how we can just add up the information to see how much time went by between first Adam to Noah and then Noah to Abram. So Genesis 5. The numbers that we specifically need to add is how old each father was when he had a descendant. You're basically learning how much time went by between one person and the next descendant. And we start with Adam. As we noted, Adam was 130 when he had Seth. This is at the beginning of our Genesis 5 genealogy. Almost there in my Bible. Right, verse 3, he was 130. So we know the length of time between Adam and Seth, 130. And we do this with each descendant. What about from Seth to Enosh, 105 years. Enosh to Canaan, that's 90 years. Now I say Canaan or Kenan, I guess I should mention this. There is one little nuance, and that is in the Luke 3 genealogy, it reports an extra name that's not featured in the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. There are two Canaans in Luke's version. And some people make much of this and they say, ah, this must mean that there's a gap. There's a name that's reported in Luke that's not reported in Genesis. And so this must be, this must be evidence of gaps. But I think that actually a better answer, and this is argued well by um, the book Coming to Grips with Genesis, and y'all can see this on AnswersInGenesis.org, is that there's a repeated, there's a, an error in a repeated name in, in the Luke text. It's not that Luke made the error. It was uh, some kind of scribal copyist error. Uh, it certainly makes sense. You're recording all these names, recording all these dates, Canaan or Kenan. It could be, you could put the English translation of the name in, in both spellings. Canaan is featured earlier in the list and it was erroneously recopied later in the list. So don't believe that that was part of the original manuscripts and therefore this is not evidence of gaps. But anyways, that's why I'm putting Canaan or Kenan in two different spellings it's really the same person. So from Enosh to Canaan, or Kenan, 90 years. From Canaan to Mahalalel, 70 years. Then Mahalalel to Jared, 65 years. Jared to Enoch, 162 years. Enoch to Methuselah, 65 years. Methuselah to Lamech, 187 years. Lamech to Noah, 182 years. 
So we're just looking at the distance between when someone was born and when he fathered the next descendant. We add all these up and we get the length of time from Adam's creation to the birth of Noah. How many years is that? According to Genesis 5, it's 1,056 years. So that's a fair amount of time, but not a huge amount of time relatively compared to some estimates of the age of the earth. But this is only one of the genealogies. We want to do the same thing in the Genesis 11 genealogy. And we do that starting with the life of Noah. So let's jump over to Genesis 11. I'll go more quickly through this list. You see the ages listed on the screen. Saw that Noah was either 500 or 502 when he had Shem. And that meant that Shem had his descendant either 100 or 102, depending on where you put the two years. Added up with the rest of the numbers on the list, with Terah fathering Abram at 130. And our second total for how much, how much time went by between the birth of Shem I'm sorry, the, the time between Noah to Abram, and we get 952 years. And then we just add up the numbers in the two lists. 1,056 plus 952. How much time went by between Adam to Abram? About 2,000 years. 2,008 years. Now, what do we do with this? Well, we can connect this information to other time details in the Bible and some of the things that we've been able to discern from studying history and archaeology. And when we do that, we can actually connect this timeline from the beginning to today. We have 2008 years between Adam's creation and Adam's or Abram's birth. Then we have about 2000 years between Abraham and Jesus, Jesus's birth. And then how long ago was Jesus born? It's the year 2018. Jesus was born around 4 BC, about 2,000 years. So it's 2,000 plus 2,000 plus 2,000. And what does that equal? An earth that's about 6,000 years old. And that's why we say, that's why I say, that's why Answer to Genesis says, that's why many people, many conservative evangelicals say, the earth is only 6,000 years old. It's a young earth. There it is. It comes from the Bible. It, it's just the way you read these genealogies and connect it with the other time information from the Bible. Like I say, it's not that complicated. It's actually pretty plain. And I don't think there's a there's really reason for us to infer gaps in these genealogies. So I'm confident. I'm confident about 6,000 years being the age of the earth. Now, that may seem like a really short amount of time. But remember, that's still actually a lot of time. A lot of things happen in 6,000 years. And we see that report in the text. It's still a long time, and it technically is an old earth. It's just not as old as some people assert that it is. But someone will say, wait, 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 wait. We still have another problem. What about all the scientific evidence of billions of years? What about all the variously dated rocks that have shown and discovered that the earth is really old? Okay, let's talk about our last issue of today's class. We've overviewed why we shouldn't accept millions of years. We've talked about the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. Let's now talk about Radiometric dating. This is one of the key proofs or one of the key supports for an old Earth, the way that people, scientists, date uh, rocks and materials in rocks as being millions of years old. But what is radiometric dating or radioisotope dating? We'll see a video about this in just a moment, but let me try and explain it first in a simple way. 
Radioisotope dating or radiometric dating operates according to uniformitarian presuppositions, uniformitarian assumptions. What does that mean? It just means that we assume that whatever we see today, the processes we see today, are the same as they've always been. If we know the rates of certain things today, we just infer those rates in the past and we can just calculate backwards. We say, we, we see something today, it must have taken this amount of time for it to happen because that's how long it takes things to happen today. We can figure out when this process first began. This is the foundation for radiometric dating. Radiometric dating starts with uniformitarian assumptions and what appear to be the oldest rocks and meteorites that we have. And scientists then take these rocks and they draw samples of chemicals present within the rocks and they analyze them. Now, some of the chemicals within the rocks are radioactive. That means that they're unstable. They spontaneously degrade into other substances. For example, some isotopes, that is types of uranium atoms, they decay and eventually form lead. They change substances. And how does this happen? Well, part of the uranium atom actually breaks off and it turns into a different material. The 238 isotope of uranium breaks off and it forms the molecularly stable 206 atom. This breaking off a part of the atom is what makes it radioactive. And that's why it's so dangerous to be near it <laughs> because these pieces of atoms that are breaking off from the material are flying through space and colliding with and piercing other atoms in space, including the atoms of your body, which they'll wreak havoc on your cells and on your DNA, which is why you wanna stay away from radioactive things. But this radioactive nature, this breakdown, it happens at a repeatable observable rate. And scientists call this an element half-life. How long does it take for half of the radioactive atoms within a substance to turn into stable atoms of another substance? The idea of radiometric dating and radioisotope dating is to use the ratio of the radioactive element to the stable element present in a rock that is what's called the parent isotope to the daughter isotope to estimate its age. For example, if you have a rock with a lot of uranium in it, it would be considered relatively young because we haven't had much time for the uranium to break down into lead. But if you had a rock with a lot of lead in it, it's assumed that a lot of lead and very little uranium, it would be considered very old since the rate of decay of uranium is very slow and there must have been lots of time for all that uranium to break down into all that lead. This is essentially what radioisotope dating is. But if you're listening carefully to that description, you may notice that for this kind of dating to work and to be accurate, certain assumptions must be true. But are they true? Can we rely on those assumptions to be true? We're gonna watch a short video now that also describes radioisotope dating and discusses those assumptions. See if you can identify those key assumptions and whether they're valid. So let's queue up this next video now on radiometric dating. It's only about three minutes and we'll come and say a few things about it afterwards. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. Now this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay. 
So if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? And that seems like a lot. But let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong, because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. Like, was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. Very nice. Quick, but I think very helpful video. Right, so hopefully you caught those three key assumptions mentioned there towards the end of the video. Three assumptions in radiometric dating that are not necessarily justified, especially when you're looking to determine the age of something that's assumed to be millions of years old. First, that we know the starting conditions of the parent and daughter ratio within a rock. It's assumed that when the rocks are formed, there's only parent element present and no daughter element present, but this is not a provable assumption unless you actually were there to observe the initial conditions. It's also assumed that all the daughter element present in the rock came from the parent element. For example, it's assumed that all the lead present in a rock, that a rock that has at least some uranium in it, it came from the breakdown of the uranium atom into lead. But that is not a provable assumption unless you observed the rock the entire time it was decaying. You don't know if lead got in there another way, or if uranium got in there another way, or left. 
was taken out of the rock via another way. Also, there's the assumption that the rate of decay has remained constant and has never changed. Now, scientists today might balk at the idea that certain conditions or certain times have changed the rate of decay, made it different than the ones they observed today. But as we've already noticed, or hopefully you noticed that the Earth in the beginning and before the flood was a very different place than it is today. There were no thorns. People lived to be past 900. It didn't rain on the Earth for a while. Could it be that some of the rates that we observe today, such as the rate for radioactive decay, were different during those times or at other times in Earth's history? I remember hearing somewhere recently that the electromagnetic field of the Earth is not as strong today as it was in the past. And that has an effect on various rates and other natural processes in the world. So these assumptions are key to radiometric dating, but they're not necessarily true. That's because the uniformitarian view that things in the past are just the same as things in the day, it contradicts what the Bible presents. We don't have time to look at it right now, but my favorite section for dealing with the uniformitarian assumptions is 2 Peter 3, 3-7, where Peter essentially says there are some people, because they don't believe that Christ is coming again, they assert that everything that we see now is the way things have always been. Peter says they forget that God created the earth, God flooded the earth, and God's going to destroy the earth. These are things that were supernatural. They, um, they can't be explained simply due to natural processes. They totally disrupted everything that was in the universe, especially creation. I mean, there, there was nothing existing and then existed, nothing existing apart from God. So things in the past are not always the same as what they are today. So you can't maintain uniformitarian assumptions. This isn't to say that radiometric dating has no value, but when it comes to the age of the Earth, it has problems. It's ultimately the age of the Earth, creation, how the flood happened, all these types of things. They're ultimately not strictly scientific questions. They're theological questions. These things happen super, supernaturally. You can't simply explain them or discover them by only using scientific methods. There's more, of course, there's much more that we can say on all these topics, but I hope that this has been valuable to you in terms of seeing why we should reject as Christians an old earth view and why a young earth view, I believe, yields an age of the earth about 6,000 years. So here's a summary of what we looked at today. Despite its controversy in today's church, the age of the earth need not be such a debated question. Bible, based on its own clear time details and Genesis genealogies and elsewhere, it presents a young earth of about 6,000 years. Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies do not contain gaps. There's no reason for them to contain gaps, nor do they need to be reinterpreted due to scientific dating methods which operate on unprovable and ultimately faulty assumptions. The real issue in all of this is, I believe, as Dr. Morton has said, this is about biblical authority. Will we believe the straightforward word of God or Will we constantly challenge it and reinterpret it in order to fit it with another authority, like man's autonomous reasoning and autonomous scientific interpretation? I think it's well said. It's not the Bible versus science. It's biblically informed scientific conclusions versus anti-biblically informed scientific conclusions. Autonomous human reasoning discounts. It rejects the Bible. And of course, it's going to have errors because of that. Now, this is Though this is an important battleground, age of the earth does have to do with the authority of the Bible. 
not necessarily the most important background. This is not something for you to part fellowship over. You say, oh, you're an old earth believer, or you think that God used evolution to create the earth. Ah, you must not even be a Christian. No, we're not saying that. But if you have thought differently, if you meet people who think differently in this area when it comes to the age of the earth, this is, this is worthwhile to challenge them on. Have you thought through these issues? Have you, have you considered the information that the Bible presents itself about the age of the earth? And is it really valid to overturn that, or reinterpret that, according to the faulty assumptions and theories of modern science today? Now, I'm sure you have questions, or maybe you'll think of questions later on about the age of the earth or about some of the things we've talked about. I welcome those questions. Please email me about them, or you can go to answersingenesis.org, where they have many articles and videos and other things that help explain a number of these issues. I'm sorry I went a little bit over time today. Next time, we're going to be talking about stewardship. God created the earth, and he's given it to man to rule. How should we rule the earth? If it's all going to disappear eventually, be remade, going to be burned up and then remade, should we just trash it? Or do we need to carefully preserve it even to the, the lengths that we're told to by environmentalists? What is the biblical perspective on stewarding the earth and its resources? We'll talk about that next time. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for this, for all this information in your word. I thank you, God, that we don't have to be anti-science. Lord, you created science. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that you've allowed us to understand. And we're always discovering new things, God, and they do make us wonder at you. But Lord, we want to operate according to wisdom and according to true knowledge. And that starts with fearing you. So God, I pray that when it even comes to the age of the earth, that we would be first and foremost submitted to your word. And that we would be using that as the authority to assess the theories and the various pieces of evidence that we see today. Lord, we give you glory for all that you've done in creation and all throughout history. It's all proceeding according to your perfect sovereign will and according to your very good design. We look forward to the end of it, God, when you bring us to the consummation and we're with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, guys. See you next week.